0: This is our last week of our making room series, and um, if you if you went online last week uh, where I talked about making room for worship, can I encourage you to go and listen to that either on Podbean or iTunes or Spotify? Just look for Revive Pukekohe. You'll find us, or you can even go into the Facebook page, and I think there's still the recording of the message on Facebook page. Um, because I actually um, think that last week's message was probably one of my best messages I've ever preached, so, um, and it was on worship. And I really want to encourage you to uh, listen to it. It's one of those ones that I think you've got to listen to uh, time and time again to remind ourselves that we're made for this, yeah? yeah. All right? All those online this morning, welcome. Um, it'd be cool to have you here in person, but I know some of you are in South Africa, so that makes it a little bit difficult. But um, welcome to Church Online. So this week, as we finish our making room, uh, series this week i want to talk about making room for god's presence because there's something powerful that happens when god's presence is manifested in our lives so there's two things that we need to understand about the presence of god there is the presence of god as in god is everywhere and in everything right are you with me for example i, I i've said to once when i was praying and kind of having a conversation with god but not like verbal but just in my thoughts I was like, God, where are you in the room? And I remember God responding to me, I am the room dummy. Because that's, God's got to speak to me, I'm a bit stupid. So he's got to speak to me in a way that I understand. And so we understand that God is everywhere. The Bible says he never leaves us, he never forsakes us. So God fills the earth. In fact, the Bible says that the glory of God fills the earth. So God is everywhere, but there's a difference between his presence that is everywhere and then his manifest presence. In other words, manifest presence is when God rocks up and you know he's there in the moment. It's like he's there in person. His presence is everywhere, but then there's his manifest presence that happens. And that's why worship is so important, because the Bible says that the way to get God's manifest presence into your world is to worship. Because the Bible says that God builds his house in the middle of our worship. And so whenever we're going through trouble or circumstance or situations, the best thing that we can do is worship, because worship makes a way for His presence, and He comes and puts Himself right smack in the middle of our situation. So having the presence of God as part of our life is really, really important, and making room for that presence is so important, because not only does it bring His presence, but it brings His power and it brings His Word with Him. And so I'm going to look this morning at a story about Elisha, in the Old Testament, and we're going to look at how we can make room for God's presence and understand why God's presence is so important to us. And so we're going to start in 2 Kings uh, chapter 4, verse 8 to 13. It says, One day Elisha went to Shunem, and a well-to-do woman was there. Everyone say, well-to-do. well-to-do. I'm not sure why we had to put that in there, but you actually said it wrong anyway, because it should be well-to-do, not well-to-do. It's well-to-do she's a well-to-do woman. Shall we try that again? Well-to-do. There we go. You're onto it. Um, who urged him to stay for a meal. So whenever he came by, he stopped there to eat. She said to her husband, I know that this man who often comes our way is a holy man of God. Let's make a small room on the roof and put in it a bed and a table, a chair and a lamp for him. Then he can stay there whenever he comes to us. One day when Elisha came, he went up to his room and he lay down there. And he said to his servant, Gehazi, call the Shunammite, that's the woman. So he called her and she stood before him. Elisha said to him, tell her, you have gone to all this trouble for us. Now what can be done for you? See, at first when you look at this story, at first of all, it just looks like a great story about how to be hospitable. How to great hospitality, yes? Yes a meal a room doesn't get much better than that yep awesome and you would think that it's just about hospitality but the thing that we have to understand as we get into this story is that all through the bible there are things that they call types and shadows and and so let me give you an example so you understand what i'm talking about when the Bible says when the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus when He came up out of the waters of baptism, it said that, he, that the Holy Spirit descended like a dove. A dove is a type of the Holy Spirit. It's like a representation of the Holy Spirit. Doves aren't the Holy Spirit, okay, so don't go up to one in the park and go, excuse me, um, I need some help, could you, because that's not going to work. A dove is a dove. Are you with me? Everyone will think you're mad for starters, and it's not going to answer your prayers. It's just a type. It's like it's a. It's like it descended like a dove. It doesn't say that it is a dove, but like a dove. Ravens all the way through scripture are a representation of the demonic. Israel in the Old Testament, wherever it's mentioned, is a representation of the church. There are all sorts of things all the way through scripture that represent different things. And so, what we have to understand in this story is that Elisha the prophet is a representation of the power and the presence and the Word of God. You see, you've got to understand that in the Old Testament, God was not everywhere. Jesus had not died on the cross to restore personal relationship with us. And so the prophets were the voice of God in every situation. And the reason why we don't see prophets to the same degree today as we did then is because the prophets back then, because they were the representation of the power and the presence of God and the Word of God, If they got it wrong, if they said anything that that God did not tell them to say, they made something up on the spot out of their own words, God would kill them. Because if they're representing God in that moment, they need to say what God would say, otherwise they're sharing their opinion and that could leave people astray so God would kill them. In the New Testament, we understand that God's grace and mercy has come And he's restored relationship to us. And now when you have people that are prophets, the Bible says this, that it's the job of pastors and leaders to judge their prophecy and work out whether that's a God one or whether it's their own personal opinion. And and the good news about that is, even though some people that have that gift don't like that, the good news about that is God doesn't kill you if you get it wrong. We could go back to the Old Testament times if people of prophecy would like to. You're so staring at me for a moment you got to understand, I have a lot of people come to me, oh, I, have, I have a prophetic gift, I'm a prophet, and I've got a word from God, and I say, oh, tell me it, and I'll, I'll decide whether you should share it or not. No, no, it's a word from the Lord, and I, I always say to them, well, we can go back to the Old Testament, if you get it wrong, God can kill you, or you can let me judge it and decide whether it's okay or not. Huh, okay, fine, be like that. So you have to understand that in those days, really, Elisha is a type of Christ. Elijah, Elisha is a type of Christ. When the prophet was in town, it was like God was in town because he brought with him the presence and the power of God and miracles happened. And what happened with this well-to-do lady is every day she would watch, or every other day she would watch Elisha pass by or she would watch the power and the presence of God pass by her house going to somebody else's house. I don't know about you, but I can relate to that somehow, and I'm sure you can too, but there have been moments in our lives where we feel like the power and the presence of God has bypassed our house and gone to the person sitting beside us house. You know what I'm talking about? Like, I'm over here, God, needing healing, but you healed the person beside me, behind me, in front of me, and on this side of me. Hello, you're missing me hello, or you desperately you need a word from God, and everybody else gets prophesied over except for, hello, I'm here. Have you ever had that experience where you feel like God just passed you by, and, and that you're observing Him walk past you, and He's doing stuff for everybody else, but He doesn't seem to be doing anything for me? So this woman is observing what is going on, and she's observing the presence and the power of God passing by her house. Every single day, and she makes this decision of saying, You know what? I don't want to just observe it going past my house, I-, I want to entertain the power and the presence of God. So, we're going to invite him in for a meal. And so, she invites him in for a meal, and he comes in. And now, she's just, now, she's not just observing the presence of God walking past her, now she's now she's entertaining the presence and the power of God. But the problem is, is that entertaining. The presence of God is not really the presence of God living within her house. It's just the presence of God being entertained in her house. And what God wants to do, God actually wants to take up residence in our lives, not just be entertained in our lives. You you can tell whether you're somebody who entertains God's presence rather than you uh, living with the residence of God's presence really easily. How do you know if you're entertaining the presence of God and not letting the presence of God live within you? It's really easy. You treat the spiritual part of your life as a department. You, you, you've got your life and you go, okay, this is the spiritual church stuff. This is the career stuff. This is the family stuff. This is my own personal stuff. This is the, this is the Weber kettle part of my life. This is golf you know, we we departmentalize it and we treat the spiritual part of our lives as a department that we do in the morning for an hour and we do it on Sundays. That's how you know if you're entertaining the presence of God because you have put the spiritual part of your life and you've just made it, this is something that I do, tick the box, went to church on Sunday. You know that if you're entertaining the presence of God because when you're looking for your Bible to find a scripture to share with someone, you find it on the back seat of your car where you left it last Sunday. Is it getting a little too real for you right now? Okay, that's right, we'll move on to the next one. You know that if you're entertaining the presence of God because you only worship on a Sunday and not Monday through a Saturday. You know if you're entertaining the presence of God because the only time you pray is when you are at church. Now, don't get me wrong, entertaining him is way better than just observing him, but God isn't wanting to be entertained and God isn't wanting to be observed. He wants to have the full run of your house, of your life. God wants the full part Of your life, and as much as entertaining him is better than observing him, entertaining is never satisfying because it's not the fullness of God in your life, it's just a a, a thing. And she realizes after a while that entertaining him for a meal is good, but it's not what she really wants, and so she says to her husband, Let's build a room on the top of our house so that not only Is he gonna come and go like he has, come for a meal, go, come for a meal, go? She's really saying here, I don't want the power and the presence of God to come and go in my life. I want the power and the presence of God to see my life as its destination, It's the place where it lives. I don't know about you, but I want God to be, I want my life to be God's destination. I want my life to be the place where he is destined to live. I do not want my life to be a detour on his way to somebody else's. I want my life to be the destination to that God lives at. And so she builds this room. So how do you make room for God? Well, you build a room to start with. I I think the interesting thing about her building the room is that she didn't build a granny flat or an annex. You know, I don't know about you, but we've looked at a couple of houses recently and we've just been thinking about what we want and. In regards to a house, and there's this one house that had this one-bedroom kind of um, sleep-out slash apartment. had its own lounge, kitchen, bathroom, laundry, and we kind of thinking, "Hey, this could be a cool place to buy." because you know, we'd have our house and then there's this place we could rent it out initially to help pay the mortgage and then maybe eventually as the kids get older and they get married, we could help them out, they could live there for free, save up to buy their own house or, or, or maybe later on, um, Trinity's mum or dad or whatever, we might be able to get them living there in that part of the house and separated from our part of the house and build a big eight foot, no, um, you know, like that, that could be good We could build, you know, she didn't build a granny flat. I want you you to understand something. She built the house to house the presence, the room to house the presence and power of God on, on the top of her house. She didn't build a granny flat on the back of her life. She built a room on the top of her life. She made the power and the presence of God at the top of her life not at the back end of her life. Are you hearing me this morning? It's about making him number one, not an afterthought out the back. The other thing about her building it on the top of the house is it means this, for him to get to his room, guess what he has to do? He has to go through her house to get to the room, which means that every time he comes to stay, his power and his presence are going through her kitchen, through her lounge, through her hallway, through her toilet and bathroom, through her whole entire life. You see, if if it was a granny flat on the back, he could avoid her house and just go into his own entrance and just have his time in his place, but she built it at the top of her house so that every time he came, he had to go through her house. We want to have lives where we make room for God at the top of our lives so that when God comes to inhabit that space, his power and his presence has to go through every part of our life to get to that part of of our lives. You hear him? We want him to fill the fullness of our lives. We don't want to build a granny flat where God can bypass our lives and go into his own space, but we want God to fill our space before he fills the space that we made for him. He built it, at the top of his house. And here's the thing is that God will only do what you invite him to do. He'll come for a meal if it's a meal you want him to have. He'll come and stay in a room if you build a room for him. He will not impose himself on you or demand from you. He'll only do what you ask him to do. And I want to encourage you to make sure that we build space for God at the top of our lives because he will then flood our entire life as he fills the room that you make for him. Then they put stuff in his room. A lamp, a table, chairs, and a bed. To me, the lamp and the table and the chairs speaks of activity. She she didn't just expect him to come and sleep and then leave, but that he would sit at the table with his lamp and read or write or do something, some sort of activity that she expected him to do in the room. But what really makes the room his room is the fact that she put a bed in his room. It's it's a little bit like if you go to stay at somebody's house and you've never stayed at their house before, you walk in and they say, Yashay says, hey, welcome to our home. This is our lounge. This is our kitchen. This is where the tea and coffee is. This is where the teaspoons are to make your tea and coffee. There's the milk in the fridge and here's the bathroom. This will be the bathroom that you use. It's not the one that my two little boys use because that, that they miss. So we got you the nice bathroom. Yeah, is that true? Anyone that's had little boys understands what it means by missing. Um, And and here's everything else. And, And then she'll walk you up the hallway and she goes, and this is your room. Well, what makes it your room? What makes it your room is that the bed that you're going to sleep in is in your room. Having the bed in the room makes it your room. Let, let me put it this way, so that you understand. If if my medicine decided to go and study away from home, and let's say she decides to go to Otago University, thank goodness she hasn't. I feel for you, parents, that if your children have travelled away to study. Um, I've managed to um, manipulate mine into staying in my house. Um, no, I'm just joking. She is studying at the moment at Laidlaw, getting her degree in theology. So. But if she decided to go to Otago University, and we're at the airport, and Trinity's crying, and Madison's crying, because she's about to go off to university, but I'm not, because I'm a guy, and I'm tough. And, um, and there's all this blubbery mess going on, uh, and, and every now and then there's a, I got itchy eyes, so I have to rub them every now and then. And, and you wouldn't hear, as she's about to leave and get on the plane and, and leave us for a period of time while she goes and studies, I would not say this to her, Madison, there's always a chair and a table at our house for you. You you don't say that, do you, to your kids? I'm sure Caroline's here today. She's got two kids away studying at Victoria University. I'm sure she didn't say, hey, Beth Barnaby, I want you to know, there's always a chair and table at our house for you. She wouldn't say that, would she? That's not what you would say. What you would say is, there's always a bed at our house For you, In fact, I guarantee you that if I went to your homes where you've had kids go away to university, that you would still call that room their room. I guarantee you if Madison went off to Otago University tomorrow and someone came over to visit, I'll go, that's Madison's room. Even though she doesn't live in it, it's Madison's room. It's her room, it's got her bed in it. It's got her bed in it. Are you hearing what I'm saying? The the bed symbolizes that that's where you live. And she put a bed in the room because she wanted to symbolize this is where the power and the presence of God lives. The minute that she furnished the room, the man of God made it his destination to come and stay. The minute we make a room and furnish the room, it becomes the destination of where God wants his destination to be. And I want you to to, to catch what I'm just about to say here, because in the story, as we just heard, that after she built the room, after she furnished the room, it says that he went up into his room, and he lay down on his bed, and he started to think, what can I do for this woman? See, when we make a room for God's power and his presence, and we furnish the room and we make it home for him, what God does is he comes and lays himself down in that space in our lives that we've made for him, and he starts to think, what can I do for them? And it goes on in the story in verse 13, it says, Elisha said to him, that's his servant Gehazi, tell her, You have gone to all of this trouble for us. Now what can be done for you? Can we speak on your behalf to the king or the commander of the army? In other words, is there an issue that only the king can address? Or do you have a battle that you're facing where you need the commander of the army to help you with? We could speak to them on your behalf. We're like, bros, you know, like, I've got their number. I've got Jacinda's number on my phone. I could give her a call if you like. Like, he's he's like, what can we do for you? I, I've got these connections. And she replied, I have a home among my own people. And other words, she's saying, I'm okay, I'm fine. Remember, she's a well-to-do lady. She's, she's not struggling financially. She's not having issues. She's, she's got enough money to build a room for him and furnish it and feed him. And whenever he feels like it, he can come and go whenever he wants because that's his room. He doesn't need an invitation to come. He knows that that's his room. He can come whenever he wants. And so she's like, I, I'm all good, I'm fine. I, I've got everything together. I've got my husband, I've got people around me, I've got my servants, I'm, I'm fine. I, I've got my own people looking after me. Elisha completely, totally just disengages from her and ignores her and turns to his servant and says, what can be done for her? Elisha asks Gehazi. And he said, well, she has no son and her husband is old. I'm not sure which is worse, the fact that she has no son or that her husband is old. We, we don't know. No sense of humor today. Then Elisha said, call her. So he called her and she stood in the doorway. And Elisha says to her, about this time next year, you will hold a son in your arms. And her response was not awesome I so wanted a kid. Her response is no. No, my Lord. She objected. Don't mislead your servant, O man of God. Now, the reason why she is responding this way is I would suggest to you that she has tried time and time again to have a child, that she has tried time and time again for this to happen. Maybe she's had multiple miscarriages, maybe she's had a toddler die at a young age, but she's had some sort of huge disappointment and pain that when he says, you don't have a kid, I'm going to prophesy that you have a kid, this time, she's like, I don't want it. There's so much pain in her world associated with a child that even when the opportunity comes for her to have one from the word from God, she says, "I I, I don't I don't want one. I don't need one. I, I don't do this to me." I mean, he, she literally says, "Don't mislead your servant." I was, "Don't tease me with this. I've gone through this before. I've been hurt before. I got a lot of pain around this." And it says, but the woman became pregnant in the next year, about the same time she gave birth to a son, just as Elisha had told her. You see, she's saying to him, I don't need anything. And he, remember, he's representing the presence and the power of God. He reaches past her pain, past her disappointments past everything that has ever happened and she reaches, he reaches to the unfulfilled dream that she has and he reaches past all of her disappointments and he says, I'm going to give you the dream and the desire that you've always wanted. See, she made her house his house and when you make your life God's house, he reaches through everything into your dreams and your disappointments, and he brings to pass your desires. He goes on to say in the story that the child grew, and one day he went out to his father who was in the field with the reapers, and he says, my head, my head, he said to his father, and his father told the servant, carry him to his mother. Awesome dad. Hey, this guy's on point. My head, my head, I. Oh. Give him to his mom, I'm too busy. After the servant had lifted him up and carried him to his mother, the boy sat on her lap until noon and then then he died. (laughs) It's crazy, isn't it, that she's done all this work to house the power and the presence of God. Then the power and the presence of God says, I'm going to give you the desire that you have unfulfilled. She says, don't do that. I've had so many disappointments. Don't do this to me but the power and the presence of God does it anyway. And then she has the outcome that she dreaded that she would have. Her son's now dead. You see, housing the presence of God in our life causes all our dreams and desires to come to pass, but it doesn't make us immune to life's tragedies. Sometimes life sucks. Sometimes life is very unfair. And sometimes bad things happen to really good people. And I'm not going to stand here and try and give you all the answers because I don't have them. I don't understand why bad things happen to good people. I don't understand why stuff happens to people. I don't understand why people that run marathons can drop dead of heart attacks. I don't understand any of that. I'm not God. I don't understand why he would give her this to then completely take it away from her. If having God completely in your life, and bad things still happen, my thought process will be, well then what's the point? Why have God in your life? Why bother? I mean surely, what's the difference? What difference does it make having God in your life or not having God in your life when bad things happen? Why would we bother? The story goes on and it says that she went up and lay him, that's the child, on the bed of the man of God and then shut the door and went out. She called her husband and said, please send me one of the servants and a donkey so I can go to the man of God quickly and return. Her husband's awesome. Why go to him today, he asked. It's not the new moon or the Sabbath. This, this husband's just on point, isn't he? Flip. She picked a good one there. It's all right, she said. She saddled the donkey and said to her servant, lead on, don't slow down from me unless I tell you. So she set out and came to the man of God on Mount Carmel. When he saw her in the distance, the man of God told his servant Gehazi, look, there's the Shunammite. Run to her, run to meet her and ask her, are you all right? Is your husband all right? Is your son all right? And she said, it is well what is going on in this woman's world that she takes her dead son, goes up to the room that is the man of God's room, where the power and the presence of God lives. She lays the child down on the bed, gets on a donkey, goes to see him. When he sees her afar off, he sends his servant to ask if everything's okay, and her response is, it is well. Now, I don't know about you, but this woman seems to be in major denial right now because it is not well. Your child just died. Your husband's a boofhead. It is not well. It is not well. How does a woman that has lost the gift that was given her, who's just had her child die, how does she say it is well? Can I suggest to you that she can say it as well because she had somewhere to lay her burden down, somewhere to put the problem, the child. If you notice, it doesn't say that she took the child and put the child on her bed. She took the child and put it on the man of God's bed. She had a place to put her problem and that place was in the power in the presence of God. The problem that we have is when we don't build a place for the power and the presence of God to reside in our lives, is that the only place that we have to put our burdens and our problems is in our head or in our own lives, which we can't answer the questions, because this doesn't make sense. How do I answer questions when I don't have the answers? But if I build a space for the power and the presence of God in my life, then I have somewhere to lay my difficulties. I have somewhere to lay the questions that I have, the disappointments that I'm facing, the pain that I'm going. I can lay them down in the place that I have made for Him. Without me making a place for the power and the presence of God, I'm laying those problems down in my own life with my ability and my strength, which is not enough to help in this situation. I need in my life, you need in your life, at particular times, the power and the presence of God because you have a problem or you have a situation or you have a circumstance which doesn't make sense sense. It doesn't seem to understand. It feels like God is against me. It feels like God has done something to me. And if we don't create a space in our life for his power and his presence, where else do we lay those things down? She was able to say it as well because she made a room for the power and presence of God. And she goes, I have no answers to this situation. I'm going to lay it down in the place that I have made for him. She closes the door and goes on a journey because she wants to find God in the midst of this crazy situation. She wants to understand the why. So she's laid it down and then she's gone looking for God in the midst of her situation. And when you make your life the place where he lives, he never drifts far from home because that's where he lives. And she goes on and she's looking for him. She put the child down in the bed and she went to find where God is in the midst of this. And the story continues and it says, when she reached the man of God on the mountain, she took hold of his feet, Gehazi came over to push her away, but the man of God said, leave her alone. She is in bitter distress, but the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me why. And then she says, 'Did did I ask you for a son, my Lord? Didn't I tell you, don't raise my hopes? In other words, you're saying, I told you not to do this to me. This is what happens. You shouldn't have done this. Elisha said to her, this is what I love. Elisha says to Gehazi, this is what I love. He doesn't answer her question. He just starts working on a solution. I think sometimes we get so stuck saying to God, why is this happening? Why is this going on? Why are, that God's busily working away on a solution for you, but you don't see the solution because you're too busy trying to find answers to some things that just don't have answers. Says the Gehazi, Tuck up your coat and your belt, take my staff in your hand and run. If you meet anyone, do not greet them. And if anyone greets you, do not answer them. Lay my staff on the boy's face. But the child mother said, as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So he got up and followed her. In other words, she's saying, I know where the power and the presence of God is, and it's right here with you, and I'm not leaving you. Uh, It's nice that you've sent your servant off, and that's good, but I'm not chasing after him. I know that I need to chase after the power and the presence of God. I'm not leaving. So he decided to go with her. Gehazi went on ahead and laid the staff on the boy's face. But there was no sound or response. So Gehazi went back to meet Elisha and told him the boy is not awakened. I don't know about you, but the mother's heart must be sinking right now. She's thinking as Elisha says this to Gehazi, "Go and put the staff on." She's she sees Gehazi coming running back and she's probably waiting for that moment. It's all good. He's alive. Nothing's happened. Nothing's changing. Nothing's shifting. When Elisha reaches the house, there was the boy lying on his bed or his couch. He went in, shut the door on the two of them and prayed to the Lord. He then got on the bed and lay upon the boy, mouth to mouth, eyes to eyes, hands to hands. I don't know why, but if you tried to do that today, you'd probably get arrested. As he stretched himself out upon him, the boy's body grew warm. Elisha turned away and walked backward and forward in the room, and then he got onto the bed, stretched out once more upon him. The boy sneezed seven times, seven is the number of perfection, it's also the number of God, and opened his eyes. Elisha summoned Gehazi Gehazi, and said, call the Shunammite, and he did, and when she came, he said, take your son. She came in, fell at his feet, and bowed to the ground. Then she took her son and went out. I, I love... Elisha in this moment, take your son, it's like, hold on, like, someone's just been raised from the dead, take your son, next, you know, it's like, this is something that happens every day in my world, (laughs) and you know what, it is, because he's a representation of the presence and the power of God, it is something that always happens in the presence and the power of God, he went into the room, he found the child on the bed, and he shut the door behind him, he lay on the child, he prayed, and where was the mother? on the other side of the door, on the other side of the door, trusting that the room that she made for the power and the presence of God was going to reap her great joy. I don't know about her, but if it was me, I would have had the glass to the door, I would have opened it slightly to peep in, I would have gone and brought one of them fiber optic cameras, stuck it under the door, I want want to see what's going on. But she had this understanding that I've built this place for the power and the presence of God. I'm going to lay my problem there and then I'm going to trust. I'm going to trust that what I've built is going to produce an outcome that I desire. Child sneezes, as the door opens. Child is given back to the mother. And friend, that is the difference that the presence of God makes in your life because it enables you to find God in situations that you don't think God is in. And here's the thing, I can't answer all your questions and I don't know why some things happen, why some people get healed and some people don't. I can't tell you why some die and some don't. I can't answer all of those questions. I can't give you any of those answers. But I can tell you this, that people that have God in their lives 100%, Fully devoted to carrying the presence of God. Those people are given, that completely give their lives to God. They seem to go through trials and tragedies with a peace that surpasses understanding, which guards the heart and mind. But here's the other thing there's also the potential for resurrection. There's also the potential for resurrection when you build space for the power in the presence of God in your life. That business that failed, there's power of resurrection in in the power and presence of God. That health crisis you're looking at, there's healing and resurrection in the power and the presence of God. That relationship that is falling over, there is restoration in the power and the presence of God. That loved one that you wanna see saved, there is power and presence In the presence of God, there is a salvation that can come. There is healing that can come. There is restoration that comes when you place the burden down in the room that you made for hosting the power and presence of God in your life. So, Craig, does that mean I get everything back? Does that mean I get everything back? In some cases, yes. In other cases, no. Sometimes you don't get everything back. But could I suggest to you that sometimes we don't get everything back because what we're looking for is we're looking for God to replace what we've lost. And sometimes we're so busy looking for God to replace what we've lost that we failed to see that he created something completely new for us. Job in the Bible had a situation where his family died. He lost everything. Sitting there, scraping boils off his body with broken pottery. His wife says, why don't you curse God and die? Job's response is, though he slay me, I still follow him. If you read the story on, you see that God restores back to Job 10 times what he lost, 10 times what he lost. But you have to understand something. God didn't raise his kids that died back to life. He gave him new kids. God didn't raise the business that he lost back to life. He gave him a new business. God didn't raise the relationship that he had with other people that was lost back to life. He gave him new relationships. Sometimes we're so busy looking for God to restore back to us this here that we've lost that we fail to see that He's created something new for us. Some of you have lost marriages and you're looking over here thinking, Man, I love God to put that back, and God's created a new one for you. Sometimes God restores, sometimes God creates new sometimes God resurrects sometimes he creates something new and sometimes we miss the new thing that he's doing because we're craving the old thing that we had and we find it so hard to let go of what was to grab hold of what is because we tend to look at life about what we've lost rather than what we're gaining that's why we don't like change because change says I have to lose this to gain that and we don't like to lose and so we don't change But to grab hold of what is to come, you have to let go of what was. Sometimes God will restore that back to life. Sometimes He creates something new. But the cool thing in all of this is that if you build, if you move from observing, if you move from entertaining and you build a house, for the power and presence of God in your life, you'll always have a place to lay down the problem, the circumstance, in a place where there's the possibility of resurrection, that you'll be able to lay your questions down in the place where you will find God in the midst of a bad situation. you have to move from observing and entertaining to building to building a house at the top of your life so that the power and presence of God flows through your life and out of your life and to those around your life it's probably time to stop observing him walking by and start building a place so that your life becomes the destination of his power and his presence why don't we just close our eyes just for a moment